This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am Jethro Jones, your host, and I am excited to invite you to participate in the Transformative Leadership Summit happening August 1st through 14th. We are going to have a great list of amazing guests who will be presenting. Jerry Pascal, John Wenstrom, Bill Ziegler, Chris Weiger, Justin Bader, Will Parker, and a host of other amazing principals and leaders to help you be the best principal you can be. Go to transformativeleadershipsummit.com to sign up. Thanks for listening to the Transformative Principle Podcast. I am Jethro Jones, your host. Thank you so much. I am very excited to interview Seth Godin today. Wow, what an awesome experience. He's going to talk about a lot of things about failure, about learning, about how we can change our educational system starting in a very small way and how we can each do that in our own schools Really a great interview, uh, both for teachers and leaders. I hope that you enjoy this. If you're just coming new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to look at some of the other 130 plus interviews that I've done and learn from the other great educators there. It's easy to get overwhelmed because there's so many awesome things, but you may want to browse through and find something that is meaningful to you something that you need to work on to help you be the best that you can be. I am really excited to announce a new event that I'm putting on called the Transformative Leadership Summit. It is going to take place online from August 1st through about the 14th, and we're going to have a ton of awesome guests crammed in to those 14 days with powerful, awesome opportunities for you to take actionable steps to improve your school starting right now. It is awesome. We're going to have people like Glenn Robbins, Daniel Bauer, Mary McMahon, Rob Carroll, the Rockstar Principals, Brad Gustafson, Will Parker, Justin Bader, Chris Weiger, Bill Ziegler, John Winstrom, Jerry Parscale, and many, many more. This is going to be incredible. Go to Transformative Leadership Summit right now. And check that out, sign up to be part of it, and learn from all these amazing people in a short amount of time. Thank you so much. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very honored and excited to have Seth Godin on the show today. Um, As many of you probably know, Seth Godin is an author and ruckus maker. I don't know if there's a better way to describe him, but he uh, challenges people's thinking and uh, makes people want to do awesome things. And uh, many of you as educators probably know him from his manifesto, Stop Stealing Dreams, which is a 
great write-up on how we can um, change education and he puts forth a lot of provocative ideas there. Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Transformative Principle. I appreciate it. Oh, it's totally a pleasure. The leadership you're bringing to the table matters a great deal. Well, thank you. I uh, got connected with you by doing a leadership course a couple months ago, and we spent three hours working hard, thinking and working in small groups. And it was a really informative and powerful experience. And uh, just wanted to thank you again for that opportunity. You challenged my thinking and made it so that I was able to articulate some of the things that I've been dealing with. And what I thought was so good about that was that anybody could come in from any walk of life and take that leadership course with you and be able to learn and grow from it. And so as we're talking today about education, we live in this bureaucratic, slow-moving organization, how do we as educators um, start making a ruckus in a monstrosity that is education? Well, let's decode that question a little bit because there's a lot behind it. Uh, I would start by asking the following question. Has anyone ever in any of the institutions we're talking about done something that other people were surprised at or delighted at, or that showed that the institution actually had plenty of humanity and flexibility in it. And in my experience, the answer is yes, that almost all of us have been touched by one or more teachers coming up that really made a difference to us. And that as educators, almost all of us know that there are people on our team who don't just check the boxes. So I think it's a mistake to look at gravity as the first thing you look at if you're a, a runner, right? That everyone has to deal with gravity. Gravity is gravity. That's not the issue. The issue is, could you figure out a way to run faster? I don't know how to change the environment. I don't know how to quickly change the culture we live in that, you know, took some things that happened in the 1910s and 20s, uh, manipulated them, and then got stuck by them and is trapped. I don't know how to fix that. What I do know how to do is encourage a principal like uh, Brooke Jackson at the lab school in New York City, or a teacher like Rob Hartshorn in Hastings on Hudson, New York, and have that person show up with a different agenda. Have parents understand what school is for. Not all parents, just one parent at a time. And the people who are listening to this podcast, by the way they're spending their time, have already voted that they're interested in that. And basically, my thesis is we don't need to wait for permission. We need to leap. Right. And and I think that that's the, the difficult part for a lot of people is what do I do to make that leap? Yep. How do I how do I start doing that? And it's hard when we have mandates and laws and kids' futures in our hands. And how do we get over that fear of leaping? How do we start doing things? Well, so now we're getting to the heart of it, which is A, if this was easy, everyone would have done it already because all the people in education care or they wouldn't have signed up for this low-paying, hard-working, low-esteem in society thing. They'd be investment bankers or something. We're in education because we care. That's a given. But it's hard, and it's hard because society and other factors have come together to make it hard. We need to acknowledge, as you just said, that what we're actually afraid of is being called out for our hubris by going outside the box and failing, by, quote, getting in trouble with the bureaucracy. However, 
we've built an enormous number of safeguards into the system so that you actually don't end up smashed against the rocks for going outside the box a little bit. And the kind of outside the box I'm talking about is the magic that occurs when we get enrollment, true enrollment from a student or her parents. The magic that happens when we figure out how in just 10 minutes a day to have something happen in that classroom that is going to change the way a student feels or acts. That it turns out we are committed 50%, 70%, 90% of the time to a series of banal tasks that have no long-term value. Totally agree. But we all have at least 10% of non-factory time. We're able to get under people's skin. And that requires the risk of saying to people, I made this, I believe this, I stand for this, we're going to do this. And that's available to us. And bit by bit, if we continue pushing in that direction, parents will get the message. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what you mean by true enrollment from the students? I thought that was an interesting term that I hadn't heard before. Well, we've corrupted the word enrollment to mean you signed a piece of paper and now you're going to go to this school or your parents will go to jail. That's not what enrollment really means. What enrollment means is you are eagerly engaged in where you are going. So before the flight takes off from New York to Anchorage, the flight attendant says, this is the last call. If you're not flying to Anchorage, this would be an excellent time to get off the plane. And no one gets off the plane because they are enrolled in going to Anchorage. That's what they signed up for. So the question is, what did the student sign up for? What did the parents sign up for? If all they signed up for was daycare plus sufficient grades to go to a famous college, you've got some work to do. Because without their active enrollment, it's much harder to lead somebody. But if you can figure out how to get to the parents and get to the kid and get them enrolled in a different process, then something happens. You know, one of the things I talk about in the TED Talk about Stop Stealing Dreams is how we go about teaching kids to be baseball fans. And what I say is we first give them a test on baseball statistics. And any kid who doesn't do well is not allowed to go on. And if they do well, then we give them a thick textbook to teach them the history of baseball and to understand a whole bunch of concepts uh, about the origins of baseball. And then we give them more tests. And if they do really well in those tests, well, obviously, we don't do any of those things. That's not how someone becomes a baseball fan. They become a baseball fan in completely the reverse order. And we can do the same thing to make people math fans or writing fans or fans of leading. That we shouldn't do it in this bureaucratic, industrialized, top-down, grade and standardized system. We should do it by seeking enrollment, first, second, and third. Because once we get enrollment, we have permission and authority to encourage and delight and to cajole and to teach. Yeah, and those are, are pretty exciting and when you when you talk about this 10% non-factory time people call that genius hour or 20% google time where google allows their employees to spend 20% of their time working on whatever they want what are some of the things that that we could be doing during that time and what are the areas where it would be most wise to spend our time you know one of the things that comes out of well-meaning teacher education is this idea of the lesson plan and of benchmarking best practices and having the next thing you do. And I want to start by going back to what's your attitude? 
what do we do when someone comes up with an answer to a question that's wrong but interesting? And one mindset is, I don't have enough time to deal with this. That's wrong. We're moving on. Memorize the right answer. But the other attitude, the attitude that I often see in the teachers that people celebrate and remember is that interesting is more important than right. And if I have 360 minutes in class, I would love to imagine that I could spend 36 minutes spread out over the whole day on interesting, on having an attitude based on interesting, on challenging students to ask interesting questions, on challenging students to memorize nothing and look stuff up constantly to say, all right, class, we're going to spend the next three minutes figuring out how many gas stations there are in the United States without using the internet. Go, right? If you ask that to a class of eight-year-olds, they're not going to say it's impossible. They're going to have a spirited three-minute sprint to try to figure out how to work their way through this complicated but interesting question without using the internet. And they'll remember that way longer than they remember the thing you taught them about, I don't even know what kind of math we teach in third grade. You know, that that's not the point. The point is to make them curious. Yeah, I think making kids curious is important. However, our, our factory model in the example you just gave, kids will do that because they believe the teacher knows the right answer and will try to get the right answer. Part of the issue, especially for me with my own daughter who is going into third grade next year, is she loves school and loves the that there is a right answer and loves meeting the expectations of the teacher. You know, just yesterday for breakfast, she wanted to make a parfait and kept asking me, what do I need to do next? And my response was, well, what do you think you need to do next? And she kept trying to find her workbook that had a recipe in it so she could follow the recipe exactly. She does not seem to enjoy taking risks. She likes to have everything right and in the right order. How do I, how do I help cultivate her to start asking interesting questions herself? Wow. What a wonderful anecdote. And she is so lucky to have you as her dad. This is proof that school works and it is proof that school is teaching exactly the wrong thing. That your daughter is almost certainly engaging and thoughtful and smart but if she keeps this up, she is doomed because we don't need people to follow recipes 15 years from now when she graduates. No way. Anything we can write down, we can find someone cheaper than her to do it. So this is urgent and it has to happen immediately, right? And she's not going to enjoy the process of going to places where there are no right answers, but there are lots of things we teach kids that they don't enjoy. It's a drip-wise process. It doesn't start with the big finish. It starts with the little tiny beginning. That one of the great things about Sarah Kay and the way she teaches uh, her, her poetry is this is what she teaches, is there's no book to look up on how to do your poetry. There is no right answer for your poetry. That what's happened to your daughter is she's already competent and she likes being competent. She likes the feedback she gets for being competent. and the challenge we have is that competence is overrated. And so the urgency here, it seems to me, is to figure out how to get her to write books, not read them, to get her uh, to ask questions, not answer them. And hopefully she will discover something in natural history or in mathematics or in literature where she can keep asking good questions 
because it's additive. It builds on itself. And we just, as parents and teachers, need to get that train started. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the ending of that story is that she made it and put oats in it instead of granola. Love it. Which I thought was a bad idea, but she said it was the best best breakfast she's ever had. Fabulous. And she she made one for all of her siblings, too. So it worked out uh, pretty good, and I imagine she'll be wanting to make that again for breakfast today. You know, one of the things that I, I think is a challenge for us is that we feel like we have to shove facts into kids' heads to make sure that they understand what they're quote unquote supposed to understand. And that challenge is is very real because we do have state standards and tests that we're measured by. And finding a short amount of time each day is is an important way to to combat that. But in Stop Stealing Dreams, you talk a little bit about how the grammar and history will come to kids. If we give kids the ability to dream, they'll figure out the grammar and history the minute it helps them reach their dreams. And I think the big fear is what if they don't learn the grammar in that way? And how do we resolve that, Seth? Well, here's what I have found in my limited research. That happens to people who don't have sufficient dreams. But people who have sufficient dreams figure it out. So the problem isn't Will they figure it out? The problem is, did we give them a dream? Did we give them something that they actually wanted to make work? You know, if you want to teach a kid math, the very best thing to do is get them excited about making a profit at their popsicle stand. Or the very best thing to do is get them uh, obsessed about some sort of scientific journey because then they have to learn math or it won't work, right? If you want a kid to learn to write well, well, the best thing to do is get them to start corresponding with people they want to write back because correspondence forces us to write clearly. That we have skipped that step and instead said, we are the authorities and we are commanding you to learn this. Do not ask questions. Do not ask what it's for. Well, why are we at all surprised that that's a really hard thing to keep up for 12 years? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Sometimes that's a hard thing to keep up for for an entire day when you've got a classroom full of kids. So when we have those those opportunities to use that 10% of our time to help kids solve interesting questions, what kinds of things should we be looking for? Is this something that we can't mass produce? And I, I think that's the way you're probably going to go, but what kinds of interesting problems do we need to be pushing towards them? Well, there's a sort of reflexive irony here because it's a little like asking how to make a parfait right? That what I am saying is, of course, there are best practices and you already know where to look for them. You already know where the the anecdotes are online. You already know where the stories are of people who have become amazing teachers and done things. But the person who doesn't want to go out on a limb looks at each of those stories and says, yes, but, yes, that, yes, well, and they're not proven and they're not part of my lesson plan. So I'm just going to go to back to the safe place. So I Rather than giving you yet another anecdote, what I want to argue is that's not the problem. The problem is we are seeking reassurance that teachers were trained and hired to do the thing, not to explore. And all I am trying to sell, the only thing I'm trying to sell teachers as someone who proudly sent both kids to public school, who went to public school, who believes in public school, is I want to challenge and encourage teachers to explore. And once you're committed to exploring, like Lewis and Clark, you'll take whatever clues you can get. You'll copy whatever maps you can find. 
But if you're not signed up to explore, all the clues and all the maps in the world aren't going to help you. Yeah, and and one of our our fears is that we're going to fail at it, and that of course um, you're going to fail at it, but you're already failing. So go ahead. <laughs> That's right. And why is that okay that we fail at it? Because that's so and against what we believe as as teachers. Failure is bad. How do we overcome that mindset? Right. So, so I had knee surgery three months ago. I did not want my surgeon to experiment in any way. I wanted him to give me perfect knee surgery because we know that for the kind of surgery I had, there's a 98% chance that I'm going to walk out of the operating room and I'll be fine forever. That's what I signed up for. But now... We don't have a school system that where 98% of the people walk out of school engaged and connected and creating huge amounts of value. We have 3% of the people leaving school at their full potential and 97% of the people at less than their full potential. So school is fundamentally broken. It costs more than it has ever cost before. We spend way more time on it than we've ever spent on it before. And for the vast majority of people who are subjected to the process, it is defective. So you're already failing over and over and over again. Does that mean you're not meeting state standards? Yes, you are meeting state standards. So what, right? That you're, is that, does that mean that the PTA is screaming at you? No, they're not screaming at you. So what? What matters is we live in a world where the good factory jobs are gone forever and where the decisions people are going to have to make about what they do next are more important than ever and where the right answer is unknown. We are not training people for that world, nor are we helping them meet their full potential as humans, as poets and singers and artists and lovers and leaders. So this sounds like a rant, but it's true. And no one who's serious about education denies that it's true. So my whole argument is, why do you think doing more of what we've been doing is going to make it likely that we're going to solve the problem any better? Yeah, that's a really good point. You've obviously got a a bias toward business type endeavors for students, but all students aren't interested in being millionaires or being big shot business people. What is your real focus? Because you're you it sounds like it's about creating your own business many times when I read what you write, but I don't believe that it really is. What's your real No, it's not it's not at all. That has there's nothing in my agenda that says we need more people like me or more people like my dad who's and a hospital crib company. What I'm saying is human beings keep telling us, A, they'd like to make a living so they're not out on the street. And B, they would like to make a living doing something that fulfills them. They would like to be seen. They would like to be connected. They would like to feel uh, like they're doing something in their life that matters. And that if you talk to human beings who comply their whole life, they tend to feel cheated they tend to feel underappreciated and they have regrets. And, you know, so tonight I'm going to go see my friend Ben Zander, who's conducting at Carnegie Hall. And Ben teaches music students. And the music students he teaches come to him saying, I'm one of the best in my school. I know how to play every note and every song exactly the way it is written. And it takes Ben a year to untrain these people and turn them from factory workers in an orchestra into musicians. I think it's better to be a musician because we don't have an orchestra shortage. We have a musician shortage. What I'm trying to do is help people fulfill their potential as leaders and dreamers and contributors. And if they do that through business, that's great. 
if they do that by having a job where they would be missed if they were gone, that's great too. But what I know, and I spend an enormous amount of time with high school students, I spend an enormous amount of time helping them navigate college, is the current system, which is the most expensive educational system in the history of mankind, does not meet any of its stated objectives. And that's pretty sobering and hard to hear for us as educators who believe that we are working hard to meet our objectives. And what solace can you give someone that you just said you're not meeting your goals? <laughs> well, I can give two bits of solace. One, I know that this is possible because every year we graduate a million kids who are so much better off than they would have been if they had gotten a mediocre education. That we do touch people, we do change people. And I'd also need to say again, that the educators that are in the world are super well-trained and trying really hard and care very much and are underpaid and under-respected. So the problem is the stated goals are wrong. The system is pushing the wrong thing. And each person in the system has to figure out how to do their part to subvert it and to change it because it's only in those moments that school actually becomes wonderful. It's in those moments where a human being says to another human being, I care about you, think about this. That's when school works. And, you know, all schooling is homeschooling. Every single kid spends more time learning at home than they spend in the school building. This is on the parents and the teachers. So one of the things the teachers have to do is encourage and amplify the parents, which is not easy because you don't have enrollment or leverage, but it pays off. It works. That when the letters come home, when the grades come home, when the interactions happen, we can start undermining that parent's mindset that all they want out of their kids is compliance and A's. We can start creating the environment where kids teach their parents about what matters today. That we can create these cycles where kids engage with one another in a peer learning setting to make positive change happen from the time they're eight years old. And it's risky, but it's not hard. Risky, but not hard. I like that. Sometimes it does feel pretty hard to to do all that. And we spend a lot of time in education talking about making plans for involving parents and getting them on board. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that the the challenge that we're actually facing is how do we get parents involved and on board with something that does not meet the actual needs of their kids? And that's what the real challenge is. And I can definitely see that. One of the things that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is if everybody becomes basically independent and just follows their own dreams, what's going to happen to our world where we, you know, Walmart employs a million people and McDonald's employs a million people. What's going to happen when those people aren't satisfied with that anymore? I can't wait until <laughs> I get a call from Walmart where they say, you know, we can't find any more people who are compliant and just want a job where they are told what to do. Please stop it. Yeah. Not only am I never going to get that call, but when I talk to the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the one thing every single one says to me is, I wish we had more people who could think for themselves. Yeah. 
one of the things about your comment about all schooling is homeschooling is if students come from homes where parents can't or don't have the ability or won't, worse yet, teach their kids at home when they want the school to be a babysitter and they want the TV to be a babysitter at home, those homes do exist. Doesn't that just widen the opportunity gap if those kids don't get those those kinds of experiences at home? Oh, yeah. And it's been going on for a really long time. It's somewhat related to income and somewhat related to culture, but you'll find homes in Scarsdale, New York that are like that and homes in the Bronx that are like that. It has to do with the self-esteem of the parents and it has to do with the culture that we surround them with. You know, it's interesting if we look at the last 30 years of the development of sports in this country, we have turned millions and millions of parents into people who think the most important thing they can do for their kids is get them to be good at sports. We did that in just 30 years. We fundamentally changed the culture in 30 years to make it so that good parenting equals good sports parenting equals your kid makes a good team. Well, if we could do it for baseball and football and hockey and lacrosse, I think we ought to be able to do it for robotics and leadership and poetry because there's nothing fundamentally different about those things. It's actually easier to spend a day writing poetry than it is to spend a day doing push-ups. And you don't have to take steroids to do poetry. But we didn't build a culture around that. And we can build a culture around that, but we need people to lead us. And the best people to lead us are the people who are listening to this podcast. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And you know, I've I've talked to many principals and other educational leaders and teachers as part of this podcast and and because I've spoken or done this podcast that I've connected with them and there's a lot of that out there. And one of the things that that we struggle with in education is that we often wait 20 years or some insane amount of time before we see the fruits of our labors. How do we measure that experience for our students right now and know that it has been successful when we're teaching in the way that you would suggest? Well, if you, if you look at an organization like Build On, they, Jim, who runs it, goes to some of the worst schools in Chicago and New York City, engages with kids who are 11, 12, 13 years old, gets them to understand the value of volunteering in the community, then takes the ones that are most effective and brings them to Mali, one of the poorest countries in the world, and creates a cycle. And after Jim has engaged with someone in junior high, the chances of them graduating from high school go up by a factor of five because one program, one person shows up and says, guess what? Volunteering is why you're here. That's just one example, right? So I don't need to measure, will you become an effective lawyer? That's not what eighth grade is for. What I want to understand is how do you carry yourself when you walk through the world? What questions do you ask? What do you keep score of? We can measure that right away. And I'm way more interested in that than whether you can conjugate verbs. Yeah, you know, I think of the the things that I was exposed to as a kid. My dad, our church had an orange grove down in Southern California, and we would go pick oranges in the mornings on Saturdays. And I did not want to be doing that. I wanted to be sleeping or watching cartoons. And my dad made us go, it seemed like every Saturday, though I'm sure it was only like once a month, but it seemed like every single day. And uh, that service, that 
giving of myself to others uh, has made a huge impact on my life and, and is part of why I went into education to serve other people. And that constant, let's go to the Orange Grove, go to the Orange Grove, uh, really gave me a different reason for why I was doing things, though I did it very begrudgingly as a kid, that is for sure. Uh, Seth, our time is uh, wrapping up, and I thank you again for your time. My last question is, what can principals do today to become a transformative principal? So here's what every principal has the power to do, every single one, regardless of the union or the situation. She has the power to recognize the heroes and that teachers in every school desperately would like to be recognized. So the question is, who are you recognizing? Who are you applauding? Who are you casting a light on? The way they do it at the International House of Pancakes is that you get the parking spot of the month if you show up for your shift on time the most and you make a lot of pancakes. If that's your mindset, that you're going to recognize the teachers who cause no trouble, to recognize the teachers who make no mistakes, and recognize the teachers who comply, what do you think the other teachers think you want? It's that. On the other hand, the principal who recognizes the brave mistakes that failed, the principal who encourages and applauds the teacher who did the right thing that didn't work will be surrounded by teachers who do that. That's, I think, the most important thing a principal can do today. Catch people doing something right, applaud them for it, see them for it, notice them for it, and repeat. Great advice. Thank you again so much, Seth, for being part of the podcast today. Any parting words of how people can learn and connect with you? Well, you know, 4 million people have read the ebook already. I hope it can get to 8 million. It's at stopstealingdreams.com. There's also a TEDx talk that's 18 minutes long. Uh, I only gave it once, but it was super fun to do. If we can share this and get parents to ask the question, what is school for? I think all of our jobs get a lot easier and well-meaning, hardworking people like you in this audience will be able to do even more of what they set out to do in the first place. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. A pleasure. Thanks for what you're doing. We'll see you. What an incredible interview with Seth Godin. Man, that was amazing. That has been a dream of mine ever since I read Stop Stealing Dreams. Gosh, when he published that many years ago. So, I hope you enjoyed that. I would also like to invite you to join the Transformative Leadership Summit where you can get more information like that from amazing educational leaders who are going to help. I talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but please go to transformativeleadershipsummit.com and enter your email address so that you can be part of that when it launches August 1st. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com be to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.